Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you one more time because you are worthy of all glory and praise and honor and majesty, dominion. Even our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whom you revealed to us in your gospel. And now, Lord, you reveal him to us by your spirit and the teaching of his word. We pray now, Lord, that you would help us again to hear what it is that Christ has accomplished, that we may be able to know what is the hope of the work that he accomplished for our salvation. We thank you, Lord, for this day that you have allowed us to see again. We thank you, Lord, for giving us understanding and the desire to hear more about Jesus. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John 12, John chapter 12, verses 16 to 26. John 12, 16 to 26, John records and says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone saves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone saves me, him my father will honor. The word of the Lord, the title of our message is, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus, and I don't have any other title. And we're going to go straight to verse 16. We're going to start differently. Sometimes we have some, we begin with a very long introduction, but today we're just going to go straight into verse 16. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So the disciples were reminded only after the fact that Jesus was he who was prophesied in the scriptures. Even the the triumphal entry, they did not really understand why Jesus was getting the donkey. Like, Jesus, what's wrong with you? (laughs) Why do you need a donkey? (laughs) (laughs) they were just walking with Jesus and they did not have an understanding of the things that we understand now until after Jesus had died and resurrected. In John 20 verse 9, John says, For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So they still did not understand that Jesus actually came to die and to resurrect. 
In Luke 24, verses 44 to 47, we hear this from Luke, and this was after the resurrection of Jesus. When he appeared to the disciples, I think this was on the road to a mouse. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And may the Lord open our understanding that we may comprehend the gospel that is in the scriptures. Because these people were stumbling at everything that was happening to Jesus because they did not understand the scriptures. Verse 46 and 47 then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So all this was prophesied, that Christ was going to die. His death and resurrection was the basis on which repentance and remission of sins were to be preached to all the nations. And this repentance and this remission of sins has to happen in his name. There's no other name. So repentance has to happen in the name of Christ, which means repentance is a turning away from any other name to the name of Christ. So remission of sins, the cancellation of sins cannot happen outside the name of Christ. Christ is the name that has been given on earth by which we shall be saved. Okay. So the Lord Jesus Christ prophesied by his own mouth how he was going to be handed over into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, but then resurrect on the third day. And the Lord spoke many things to his disciples, but they did not have understanding of what it is that he was teaching them. He even said to them, I have many things to tell, but you can't bear them, you can't hear them now. I have just so many things to tell you, but you have no understanding. It's a waste of time for me to tell you a whole lot more things right now. <laughs> why, why, Jesus, why didn't you tell them the very many things that you wanted to tell them? First Corinthians 2.14 1 Corinthians 2.14 But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. If the Lord had taken time to give them much more stuff, then it was going to all be foolishness to them. They were natural men. Listen to Luke 24, verse 25 to 27. Then he said to them, this is the Lord speaking to the disciples, all foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the Lord rebuked his disciples after his resurrection and called them fools. And slow of heart to believe not just some things, but in all that the prophets had spoken about him. And so beginning at Moses and all the prophets, the Lord expounded, not just gave a summary. Jesus did not give them a summary 
of the obvious text. He did not give them just an outline, but he expounded in depth all the things that concerned him from the scriptures. Why? Because the scriptures were given to testify of him. Moses testified of Christ. The prophets testified of Christ. All the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, they testified of him. The law was not given as the end or cause of salvation, but rather to bear testimony of Christ. Moses, everything about Moses, as he was writing, he was bearing testimony of Christ. But many continue to put Moses and the prophets on the same podium with the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, the believer who died to the law of Moses is still getting instructions from a dead husband. Because Moses is a dead husband. And there's no sane person who goes to the grave of their dead husband to get instructions on what to make for dinner. And that's what the church is telling us when they say we have to go back to Moses. We don't receive instructions from Moses. We receive instructions from Jesus. He is alive. Moses is dead. So many in the church continue to have Moses going to the honeymoon with Jesus and his bride. And they may be sincere in saying that, but they are wrong. Moses only packed the bags for Christ, but he does not get to go on the Royal Caribbean cruise. He does not get to go. Jesus did not buy a ticket for Moses to join the cruise. He did not. John the Baptist understood this clearly. Listen to what John says in John 3, verse 29 and 30. John 3, verse 29 and 30. John said, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. The friend of the bridegroom is the best man. He is the best man. John the Baptist was more than a prophet. He was also a priest because his father Zechariah was a priest. And that means John the Baptist was a mediator of the law and the prophets. Jesus would come and say the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. That's Matthew eleven thirteen. The law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. So you see, John was both a prophet and a priest. So he represented the whole Old Testament. But once Christ came, they had finished their work of bearing testimony. And so they had to decrease. Why? John said, because this joy of mine is fulfilled. The law and the prophets have been fulfilled. They've come to the end of which they testified. They were pointing to Christ and that Christ has arrived. Okay. John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. To remember that, the cousins. And so they could not be married to the same bride. It's very purposeful. They could not be married to the same bride, the church. <laughs> they could not. They were cousins. But how did John decrease? How did God preach the decreasing of John, the decreasing of the law and the prophets? By having John the Baptist being decapitated by Herod. John had to be decapitated to say we have come to the end of the law and the prophets. And it's Jesus who was sovereign over that. If Jesus wanted John to continue, he would have opened the prison doors as he did for Peter. 
He did not. As he did with Apostle Paul. He did not. Why? Because the law had to come to its fulfillment. It had to come to the end. If John the Baptist does not decrease, then we are not telling the truth about Christ. If John the Baptist does not get decapitated, then we are not telling the truth about Christ. The law has to be decapitated. The prophets have to be decapitated because the one to whom they were pointing has arrived. They have no more use. Okay? So those who continue to want to put us under the law and the prophets are fools <laughs> and slow of heart because they are failing to see that the law was supposed to die when Christ arrived. And if we fail to find Jesus in Moses and the prophets, we are foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. And those are not my words. Those are the words of Jesus because there are many teachers in the church who will not want to find Jesus in the Old Testament. They say, oh, we are done with the Old Testament. Okay, We are done with the law and the prophets, but we are not done with the Jesus who was prophesied. <laughs> because those things were talking about Christ. So when we go back to Genesis, we go back to the law and the prophets, we are going to find what they testified about Christ. Okay? So we are not going there to be bound by them, but to find what it is that they bore testimony about Christ. So the Lord is saying, if you are reading the Old Testament and you don't find the testimony of the gospel, then you are reading it with the heart of unbelief. That's what he's saying. And that's what the Jews had issues with. The Jews were reading the Old Testament with a heart of unbelief. And so they failed to see what those scriptures were pointing them to. And so the Lord's disciples were no better. And it was not because the Lord was following the wrong school syllabus for them. <laughs> he did not come and give them a hoodwork class instead of a Bible class. He was always teaching them from the scriptures but their hearts were slow and foolish. But what does that mean? What does it mean to say their hearts were slow and foolish? It is saying they were unregenerate. They were not born again. For we know that the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. The Holy Spirit was only given to them after the resurrection, if you still remember. He breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Why was the Holy Spirit not given them when they still had Jesus? Because the Holy Spirit was a promise of the new covenant, Ezekiel 36. So the Holy Spirit could not be given to them until the new covenant in the blood of Christ had been formed. So as the Lord was still speaking to, to them, the new covenant had not yet come. For a covenant is not cut or made without blood, without the proven death of the testator. And so the Holy Spirit was part of what was paid out to us, the church, by the death of Christ. The Holy Spirit was part of the benefits from the will and testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is very important understanding. The Holy Spirit was written in the will and last testament of Christ. And so, until Christ had died, the Holy Spirit was not available to the disciples or even ourselves. It could not be given. And without the Holy Spirit, we all would be foolish and slow of heart to believe everything. <laughs> Why? Because 
It is the Holy Spirit who gives understanding to all things pertaining the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. The Holy Spirit was not given to provide answers for exams or to put anointed, to put the Holy Spirit in anointed pans. He was not given to be shoved into things and call those trinkets anointed. Because that's what is happening across the whole world. These imposters are claiming to put the Holy Spirit in just about everything. And we don't have that teaching anywhere. When you read the scriptures, you're going to find the testimony that the Holy Spirit was given as a down payment and as a seal of our salvation. The Holy Spirit was given to quicken us, to make us alive, and to bring the testimony of Christ. He is the spirit of truth and he is the teacher. So he is the one who teaches us and gives us understanding of what the scriptures are talking about. Listen to what Jesus said in John 16, verse 12 to 15. John 16, verses 12 to 15, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. Verse 13, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I say that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit was given to declare the things of Christ to his people. And so the presence of the Holy Spirit is found where Jesus is talked about, not where the Holy Spirit is talked about. (laughs) The Holy Spirit will not talk about himself. He will talk about Christ. The Holy Spirit is not the center of the show. Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is the center of the Godhead. The Trinity is centered around the Son. God reveals himself through the Son. He creates all things through the Son. So it is the testimony of the Holy Spirit to us that we have to go to Christ and not go to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not say, go to the Father. No, he says, go to Christ. The Father says, go to Christ. And Jesus says, come to me. That's the testimony that you find. When you try to go to God outside Christ, you give you the back of his hand and say, no, I don't talk to you. You talk to Jesus. The Holy Spirit says, I don't talk to you. You talk to Jesus. So if you're not hearing much about Jesus, then the spirit of truth is not there. (laughs) It's yet to come because he brings the one testimony of Christ. So the disciples of the Lord did not understand spiritual things. They were fleshly because the gospel is a spiritual exercise And it requires the Holy Spirit to understand it and to receive it. To understand spiritual things is more than understanding what the word or words that are written in the scriptures mean. The Lord said to the Jews in John 5.39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. The Lord says, You study the scriptures diligently, And you do it so well that you could even get A's, straight A's, and become PhDs. But still, you are not understanding what they are saying because you are not coming to me. 
they are supposed to be pointing you to me. They testify of me. And so if you are not getting that, your reading, your studying is in vain. And what that means is that the Jews still did not believe the gospel that was being preached to them in those scriptures that they were reading. So that tells us what? It tells us that coming to Christ requires more than a diligent study. You have a lot of seminaries now that have professors who have PhDs, who are unbelievers, and yet they are teaching the New Testament. They are teaching the theology of Apostle Paul, and yet they are unbelievers. (laughs) Why? Because it requires the Spirit to make one alive. It requires the Father to draw and to teach. It requires the Son to receive those that the Father has sent His way. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in drawing you to Christ. So to believe is the work of God alone. You see what we are talking about? We are talking about believing because that's the issue of the gospel is believing, it's not doing. It's believing. It's believing and believing. And Jesus is laboring the point in all the Gospels. He continues to labor the point of believing. Once we get to the doing, the doing is the easy part. Believing in Christ is impossible to do. You can't do that by yourself. So you may think, well, I'm not doing enough. No, we we can get you a lot of things to do stuff. We can go to Home Depot and get you some more things to do. They have a lot of tools on sale. We can give you things to do. Okay, <laughs> But to believe in Christ Jesus is impossible. So praise the Lord if you actually believe in the testimony about Christ. An educated unbeliever can read what the Bible says and be able to tell you a lot of things like we find in a lot of pulpits and seminaries, as I said, But without the Holy Spirit, they will not see the Christ who is in those words. They will not see the gospel in those words and will not rejoice in what is contained in those words. They have no hope in those words. But the Holy Spirit with those words testifies to us that we are the children of God. Which testimony is not given to those who are not born again. One has to be born again to receive the testimony of the gospel. They have to be born again. One cannot believe the testimony of Christ unless they are born again. So the Holy Spirit testifies of the gospel, the finished work of Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the gospel. The person of Jesus Christ is the gospel. Because the work that he does only has value because of who he is. You could take me and do just about the things that Jesus did. And that would benefit you zero. (laughs) Why? Because it's me. (laughs) The gospel is the gospel because in Christ, God has revealed himself to man. In Christ, God has made himself accessible to you and I who had no clue who he was. So Jesus Christ is the gospel. And the Holy Spirit is the servant of Christ who comes and saves Christ's people with a full cost meal of the accomplished redemption of Christ Jesus. So the testimony that Christ accomplished your salvation does not come from man, that comes from the Holy Spirit. Because 
it is he alone who actually knows what that means. We don't really know what it means for Jesus to say is finished. We may think we know some things, but it's only God who knows exactly what that means. But we believe the testimony of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says it's finished. And so we come and say the same thing. It's finished. <laughs> if anybody has issues with that, you go ask Jesus. <laughs> and so we can't underestimate or downplay the testimony of the Holy Spirit or the person of the Holy Spirit because that is just foolishness. The Lord Jesus Christ said in John 3, 5 to 8, talking to Nicodemus, you know this conversation. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Why, Jesus? Why does one need to be born of water and the Spirit? Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So that which is born of the flesh will remain flesh. Like begets like. We were born in Adam so we can only propagate the line of Adam unless the second Adam comes and he gives us a new birth. And when he gives us a new birth, guess what? We have been born of the spirit and so we become spirit in the sense of being born again. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't be surprised. This is supposed to be obvious. <laughs> the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying, this is not within your power. You don't command the wind, and so you can't command the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. He does whatever he wants, to whomever he wants. <laughs> but according to Jesus, being born of the Holy Spirit is non-negotiable. It has to happen, and it is God alone who does it. There's no man who can cause an another man to be born again. And so until the Holy Spirit has been given, you and I cannot understand spiritual things. We cannot receive them. And so that was the testimony of the disciples. They also did not understand what Jesus was telling them because they had not yet been given the Holy Spirit. And that is why they were despairing. After the Lord had died, they went back fishing. And went back laying carpet and fixing people's driveways, thinking, oh man, this Jesus jubed us. <laughs> I'm serious. They are very distraught. Our life was firing on all four cylinders, and then suddenly this guy is dead now, and we don't even know where he is. And Peter's thinking, man, I should not have thrown away my fishing nets. <laughs> if I just known, I would have uh, given them to my uncle or someone. <laughs> but this is what happens when the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit was given, they began to testify with much boldness, with much power, with much understanding. Even these very common men who, you know, the story that happens on the day of Pentecost. People were amazed by the boldness and the understanding that Peter had. And they're like, man, where did these guys come from? <laughs> they have power. They have the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they were getting power from the Lord. It was the Lord who was speaking through them. The Lord said, don't worry about what you have to say. You don't need to carry a PowerPoint presentation with you. It shall be given to you at that hour what you have to say. It shall be given to you. So if we minimize the Holy Spirit in our understanding of Christ, 
we are of all men miserable. And there's much foolishness in the church because there are many unregenerate hearts who are closed off to the truth of the gospel of Christ. They are closed off to the truth of the gospel of Christ. Let's go to John 17. No, 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 sorry. John 12, verses 17 to 19. Therefore, the people who were with him when he caught Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The death of Lazarus was such a significant event in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He used that story to close off his ministry as he was preparing to go on the cross. And the death and resurrection of Lazarus preached many things. Mainly, it was for the glorification of the Father through the Son. But also, it was to serve as an important marker to say the hour of the cross had come. But not only that, it was given so as to build the faith of some as they bore witness of this great sign. And there were some who believed the testimony of Jesus Christ about himself. In this group of people, there were a lot of people involved around this event of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. So some came and they believed the testimony of Christ. Because the miracles of Jesus Christ were given to testify of him. They were given to authenticate who he was. Because the Old Testament scriptures had prophesied that the Messiah was going to do these things. He was going to heal the sick and he was going to open the eyes of the blind. And he came and he said in John 14 verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. So Jesus is saying, well, if just believing is hard for you, at least believe in me because of what I'm doing. <laughs> for the sake of the miracles that I'm doing, believe that I am he because there's not a man who can do the kind of things that I do. Okay. And so some people came and bore witness of Christ on account of their presence at the resurrection of Lazarus. And others who were not eyewitnesses of the event also came to meet with the Lord on account of the resurrection of Lazarus, they heard about the resurrection of Lazarus. So you have a mixed bag of people who are around Jesus at this point. Those who came, who were at the house of Martha and Mary when Lazarus was resurrected, and those who heard about it. So everyone has come to Jesus. But there were some who were coming to see what other trick Jesus was going to pull from the bag. Because Jesus seemed to always have a lot of tricks. Others came to see if they could put Lazarus back to death. They wanted to see if they can kill Lazarus again. Man, we just hate you because God raised you from the dead. <laughs> but it's only the spiritually dead who want to kill others. It's only the spiritually dead who want others to be dead. To be like them. The spiritually alive always bring life 
Jesus Christ, the one who was alive, always brought life. So one brings to the people what they have. Some bring life, others bring death. When one brings the truth of salvation, they're bringing life. When people bring a gospel that does not save anyone, then they are bringing death to the people. They are not bringing life. But listen to verse 19 of John 12. Then the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees are not very impressed by this whole thing. (laughs) So they said to themselves, See that you are accomplishing nothing. They are talking about themselves. They are mad at themselves because they feel their positions are threatened by Jesus. When you try to fight against Jesus, when you try to fight against the work that Jesus is doing, you begin to talk to yourself. In self-hatred, why? Because you don't win. (laughs) So they came to the conclusion that their efforts were accomplishing nothing. They are failing to stem the tide of people that are flowing towards Jesus. They have run out of countermeasures to prevent people from going to Jesus. Look, the world has gone after him. Jesus' ministry seems to be growing. People are coming to him, and this can't be a good thing. You can't have that many people go to Jesus. This is not good. The whole world cannot go after Jesus. But yes, the whole world has to go after Jesus because he is the savior of the world. By that statement, they are preaching the gospel according to John. He is the savior of the world. The boundaries of the work of Christ go beyond national Israel. And so God uses them to preach that Jesus is the savior of not just Israel, but the world. But which world is this that is going after Jesus? Verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. The Greeks are the Gentiles. And Jesus not only has some disciples from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. And to understand what is going on, we have to find help from Solomon, from 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings 8 verse 41 to 43. This is Solomon praying as he was dedicating his magnificent temple to the Lord. Solomon prayed thus and says, Moreover, verse 41, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this temple here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. Did not the Greeks, the foreigners, from a far country come to Jerusalem for the sake of the Lord, of what they had about the Lord? Did they not hear about the great name of Jesus? And what works he was accomplishing in Jerusalem. This was not Solomon praying, friends. It's not Solomon who was praying. 
This was the high priestly prayer of Jesus interceding for his people. This is the Holy Spirit who is speaking through Solomon. This is Christ speaking through Solomon. And he is praying and saying he shall have his people. And when they come, after having heard about him, he should not turn away his people. Even those from among the Gentiles, and that is you and I. And so we came because Christ already prayed that we should come. And that when we come, we would not be rejected. And so what we are seeing with the coming of the Greeks is the fulfillment of the statement that Jesus said in John 10 verse 16, where he said, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, of this fold of Israel, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one, there will be one flock and one shepherd. So the Greeks are coming in to begin to fulfill what Jesus was saying, to begin to fulfill what Solomon was saying. So this is the gathering of the Gentiles. And if you still remember, the Lord also had begun the work of gathering the Gentiles from among the Samaritans, the Gentile territory in John chapter 4. And now he is gathering his wheat from among the Greeks, the foreigners that were prophesied by Solomon. And if you still remember, the whole world then was divided between Israel and everybody. <laughs> Israel and the Gentiles or the Greeks. The Greeks are they who were the lawless hands because they did not know the God of Israel. God had not revealed himself to them as he had revealed himself to Israel. But there were some who had been converted to Judaism, who were seeking the hope of Israel just as we also had people like the Ethiopian eunuch. That was some Ethiopian dude. <laughs> but he also was seeking the hope of Israel. But these people all belonged to Christ Jesus. They belonged to the fold of Christ. And these Greeks came to Philip. Remember, Philip is not really much talked about as Simon Peter. Philip was not the head of the disciples. He was not the spokesperson of the disciples. But we are told that Philip was from Bethsaida of Galilee, which implies that the location may have put him in contact with these Greeks. They probably knew Philip somehow, somewhere, and they thought he could help them to get to Jesus, to get the attention of Jesus. Verse 21 of John 12, Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Pay attention to the request. They came to one of the disciples of the Lord and asked not to hear about the disciples and say, So what has been your experience with Jesus? But they came to see Jesus. And that is the request that we should all make when we come to any place where Jesus is expected to be found or to those who claim to know and spend time with Jesus. You go to the preacher and say, yes, we loved your food, and your church building is nice, the restrooms were clean, <laughs> we enjoyed the coffee, it was fresh, and we loved the cookies, and the singles ministry was very good. <laughs> but sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Why? Because if this is not our desire, then we can never know when we are hearing foolishness 
about Jesus. We can never know when we are not hearing the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And we will never know what to look for in a church. Far too many people think that whatever is open on Sunday is church. As long as the people going in there smell good and have some long dresses on. No, we have to keep asking to see Jesus. And if a preacher can't see Jesus, then he can't tell you anything about Jesus. Because Philip, for Philip to be able to point them to Jesus, he had to know who Jesus was from among the group. And the church world would not be able to point you a Jesus if they were to see him because they don't know him. A lot of preachers have run out of Jesus. <laughs> they have nothing to tell you about Jesus. But we can't run out of Jesus like a gas station that runs out of fuel. We can't run out of things to talk about Jesus because all the scriptures testify of him. John said of the works of the Lord in John 21, 25, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the word itself could not contain the books that would be written. These are things that were not recorded for us. But the ones that were recorded were recorded so that we may know that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the Christ and that we may believe in his name and be saved. Fables in the church come because preachers have run out of Jesus to talk about. <laughs> and then they just tag the name of Jesus somewhere at the end of sermon. And say, oh, isn't Jesus great this morning? I'm like, man, I didn't hear nothing about Jesus. <laughs> but Apostle Paul would also come with the same testimony and say in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16 to 18. This is a very wonderful testimony by Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9, 16 to 18. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, war is me if I do not preach the gospel. Apostle Paul says, I'm, I am in serious trouble if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. And there are a lot of people who are professing to preach the gospel, but with a charge. <laughs> I'm going to make it easy, folks. We're going to get you to give painlessly. Just link your account to my account. We're going to make this thing so easy. Make money. Make sense. <laughs> if you want to hear the gospel, you have to ask. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Show us the nail-scarred hands and feet of Jesus, show us the pierced side of Jesus. But remember, after his resurrection, that's how he showed himself to them. When they saw the nail-scarred hands, they saw the pierced side, they recognized him. Because God's people will only recognize Christ by those signs. And by that, we mean when we preach the gospel of Christ. We don't call Anybody to a 40-day fast. Do not call us to Daniel's fast. Do not call us to Jabez's prayer. Do not call us to making new covenants 
with God in year 2017, 2017. Do not tell us 2017 is the perfect year because it has the number seven in it. Please do not call us to any of that foolishness. We want to see Jesus. And the true preacher of the gospel would then say, War is me if I do not preach the gospel. War is me if I do not give the sheep their food in their proper time. Why? Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whose master, whom his master made ruler over his household to do what? To give them food in due season. And this was not talking about giving people double cheeseburgers and apple pies and fries during sermons. That's not what Jesus was talking about. It was talking about teaching and preaching the gospel. Verse 22 of John 12. Philip came and told Andrew. And in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Philip was not confident enough to go by himself to Jesus. And so he summoned the help and courage from Andrew, I believe this is the brother of Simon Peter. And so they went and told Jesus. When we come to church, we have to come so that we may inquire about Christ. And when you come to inquire about Christ, I have to take you to Christ. If you do not want to be taken to see Jesus, then there's nothing that can be done for you If I can't take you to see Jesus every time, then this is not worth your time. I'm only here to drive a golf cart to take you to Jesus. (laughs) To show you Jesus in the scriptures, I am just a groundsman in this gospel business and nothing more. I just know where Jesus is. Let me show you Jesus in this story. Let me show you Jesus in this story and this other story and this other story. That's what is being said. But listen to verse 23 and 24 of John 12. But Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. The Lord was always enigmatic. It just was strange how he answered questions and requests. The Greeks asked if they could see Jesus. And I would have thought that Jesus would have said, Hi, fellows, how are things in Greece? Very good to have you. That was a very long distance for you to come this way. (laughs) How did you hear about our ministry? (laughs) Did the greeters give you some cookies at the entrance? (laughs) No, he says, the hour has come. That the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Lord Jesus, that is creepy. I've come to your house, Sister Jenny, and I'm asking to see Stan. And the first thing that he said to me is, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) What are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus begins to talk about his death on the cross. What is that? What is Jesus talking about? That is preaching the gospel. 
Why? Because the Greeks have requested to see Jesus. And when a request is made to see Jesus, then Christ has to be preached. The gospel has to be preached. And so, as soon as the request is made, guess what? Jesus begins to preach about himself. Christ and him crucified. And so, this is Jesus' response to the request to see him. So, every time a button is pressed to ask to see Jesus, Jesus says, this is the answer. This is how to answer it. You preach the gospel. You see him in the gospel. And so if you're not hearing the gospel, you're not seeing Jesus. And many people are going to churches and going back home having only seen Moses. They've only seen Moses. They always hear about Moses, but they never get to see Jesus. Be careful of the confessions that only bring you to Moses and leave you without seeing Jesus. That's the problem. And when you're reading Moses, it doesn't sound like there's anything wrong with Moses. And there's nothing wrong with Moses. But Moses has to take you to Jesus. But this is what is also happening. The Lord sees the arrival and request by the Greeks as the signal to say the hour of the cross has come. These are all roadmarks or signs that were posted on the highway of his mission. The Lord Jesus Christ had markers or indicators of where he was in his mission, not as a reminder necessarily, but every event was saying, we are getting closer, we are getting closer to the hour of glorification. The death of Lazarus was an important rod sign for him to say the hour is near. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, comes And she anoints his body. She breaks the jar that had oil, signaling that the hour has come. And so the Greeks show up and Jesus says, the hour has arrived. Verse 24, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Do you see that? That statement is also connected to the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus died and he was planted into the ground and he came out. But because it's Lazarus, he doesn't really profit anybody, anything. (laughs) So what does that glorification consist of? The glorification that Jesus is talking about. How are you to be glorified, Jesus? Bring the tithes and offerings to God's house. No, by being buried... But he can't be buried before he dies. And that means the hour of glorification is the cross. is the death of Jesus on the cross. The cross of Christ was the hour of both his humiliation and his glorification. Humiliation because of the punishment of our sins. The lowliness of being crucified as a criminal. As accused. Why? Because cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. But in this humiliation was also glorification. Why glorification? Because God was demonstrating his righteousness. And in the resurrection of Christ, Christ is glorified and declared to be the Son of God by the Spirit of holiness. And so the Lord Jesus pulls an example from agriculture and says, you know what happens 
to a grain or corn of wheat. If you do not plant it into the ground, if you don't bury it into the ground, and, and the burying of the wheat into the ground is a picture of death, then it remains alone. It cannot germinate and it cannot grow into a full-size plant that bears more grain. It can't be fruitful. But when it dies in the ground and grows to a full-size crop and becomes fruitful, then many people can be fed from the harvest. So the death of Christ was necessary for the fruitfulness of his work if anyone was to be benefited by him. The death of Christ had to accomplish something for the people, something that would flow abundantly from him that others could benefit from. The death of Christ was necessary for us to be saved. Because if Christ had come and not died, he would have profited you nothing. Why is that? The death of Christ was the death of a testator who made a will and last testament. Jesus was not just dying to die. He was dying because he had a will and last testament that he made before the foundation of the world. And unless he comes and dies, the benefits that were contained in that will could never flow to you and I. That's why. That's what Jesus is talking about. And so when he dies, the things and the goods that were put in that will are made available to all the beneficiaries. Something that is very important to think about. The names of the beneficiaries are put in the will before the distribution. That is, all wills are written. Even pagans do that. They know that. They don't like election, but they elect who are going to be the beneficiaries of whatever they have. (laughs) So election is only bad when you're not doing it. When you're not the one doing it. (laughs) So the gospel is a call to gather the beneficiaries of the will of Christ. It is not looking for random people to put in the will to become beneficiaries. It is calling those who were given to the Son by the Father because it is they who were put as beneficiaries of the will and testament of Christ. That's what what is happening. All this free will stuff, I choose Jesus, it's all foolishness. Because people are not thinking about what God is saying and that's why he's giving us all these pictures that we understand because of these pictures that we have if we really look for the gospel, there's nothing in creation that you can't find the gospel in. Zero. So wills and last testament did not show up because people were afraid that the government would come and take the money from them. They began because of Christ. <laughs> of course the government is going to take your money. <laughs> That's what they're there for, right? <laughs> Verse 25 and 26 of John 12. Then the Lord said, he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone saves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone saves me, him my father will honor. So the Lord on one hand speaks about his hour of glorification and says it has come. But. Immediately, he switches away from himself to some unnamed people and says, verse 25, He who loves his life 
will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus, that is confusing. What are you talking about? What has that to do with the hour of your glorification? What has that to do with these strangers, these Greeks, these nice people (laughs) who have come to see you? Everything. Everything. The Lord is stipulating the conditions of coming to him, even to the Greeks. He has to tell them how they have to come. The Lord is a true gospel preacher. And he's not playing. He's not looking for friends. If anybody gets offended, he doesn't care. So the one who desires to come and see Jesus will have to hear how they are going to come to him. They have to hate their life, according to Jesus. Okay, you guys, you came to see me, but do you hate yourself? Like, oh, no. I was on Oprah and I had about self-esteem. And it's not good to hate yourself. Jesus says, hate yourself if you have to come to me. Oprah says, no, you need a book on self-esteem. You need to raise your self-esteem levels. (laughs) The glorification of Christ on the cross is to the end that two things may happen to two groups of people. There's one group who loves his life, who will lose it. And there's another one who hates his life in this world who will keep it to eternal life. You have the cross and the effect of the cross is that it's going to divide. That's what Jesus is saying. It's going to divide. Jesus connects this hating of oneself with eternal life. Why would he connect that with eternal life? In the light of the glorification of Christ, one will hate their life and exchange that for eternal life. They will hate their own life and exchange that hatred of themselves for eternal life. I thought that if someone hated themselves and they had those issues with hate, they should seek the help of a therapist. But Jesus says, no, we are talking about hatred at a different level. He says the one who, who loves his life will go to what? To condemnation. Because if Hating your life is associated with eternal life, then loving your life is associated, associated with condemnation. And this happens in the context of the cross. What is that saying? Jesus is saying the cross divides into death and life. As he divided the two thieves into salvation and condemnation. And Jesus was he who was in the middle of both of them. The repentant thief hated his life and came to Christ. Do you not even fear God? Seeing you are under the same condemnation, he makes the testimony that Christ is God. And he makes the testimony that he was justly condemned. He was giving the testimony that he hated his own life. He was saying he did not have his own righteousness that he could bring before God. And yet the other thief loved his life, did not repent, and said, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Get down of that cross. If you are Christ, get off the cross and go get a getaway car so that we can get away from here (laughs) and go back to just be doing the things that I used to do with my boys. And so this man was condemned. This thief was loving his life. He did not confess his wretchedness before God. He did not say he was worthy of condemnation. He did not say that. He wanted to get off. 
So hating one's life in this world means what? What does it mean? We are going to close off our teaching with that. We're going to expand on it because it's a very important understanding. But the scriptures do speak to it. What does it mean to hate one's life in this world? Is it going about saying, I am a loser and a scumbag? <laughs> I just got fired from every job. I get fired from every job. Is that what that is saying? No, it is talking about righteousness. Because in Matthew 16, the Lord Jesus said this. Actually, Jesus explained this. Matthew 16, verse 24 to 26. This is what Jesus said. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, that sounds like the Greeks. If anyone desires to come after me, that sounds like he's talking to the Greeks. But this was in Matthew. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That sounds like what Jesus told the Greeks, right? So to hate one's own life is to deny oneself. And denying oneself is to take up one's cross. And to take up one's cross is to follow him. But what does it mean to deny oneself? Is it giving up chocolate for Lent? No. It is to deny oneself of their own goodness. To deny oneself of their own accomplishments as the reason why they will have a standing before God. It is to be converted and to come to God as a child with no accomplishments of our own. And Jesus says the one who desires to come after him has to take up their cross. What is taking up the cross? Because I don't see anybody here this morning who was hauling a cross with them when they came to church. Because if that's the case, then we have to buy trailers with whatever money we have for everyone to carry their cross with them. Is it getting your own piece of wood and carrying it to Golgotha like the two thieves did? Is it getting a necklace with a cross on it and hanging it on your neck? <laughs> no. If you get crucified for your own sins, there's no hope. Why? We know what happened to the other thief. But this is what we need to understand. A cross is an instrument of death. And there's no person who can crucify themselves. One always has to be crucified by others. So who crucifies you that you may carry your cross? It is Jesus Christ who crucifies your own righteousness and calls it done. It is Jesus Christ who crucified Paul and hence Paul would come and say this in Galatians 6.14 but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So the world has been crucified to Paul. So what is that saying? To hate yourself is to hate your own righteousness. It is to boast only in the cross of Christ. It is to boast only in the righteousness that the cross of Jesus Christ accomplished. But let's hear more explanation from Paul because I think Paul explains what it means to hate yourself and what it means to follow Christ better than anybody anywhere. Philippians 3. Philippians 3, verse 3 to 11 we're just going to keep working that all the way to the end. Philippians 3, verse 3 to 11. This is the testimony that Apostle Paul 
has about himself. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Right there. To have no confidence in the flesh is to hate yourself. Listen to what Paul says, verse 4 and 5. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm also. And now he gives us his Facebook profile and says, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. <laughs> he is the tribe of Benjamin. He did not say the, the tribe of God or Naphtali. Benjamin was the last born, loved of Jacob. He said, if you're talking about a special tribe, I was loved of the father. I belonged to the tribe that was loved of the patriarchs. A Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. <laughs> wow, that's some profile. And then he says of these things, but what things were gained to me? What things? The things that he had just told us. Those things were gained to him because he thought he had a standing before God because of those things. These I have counted loss for Christ. Whoa. Apostle Paul, with those accomplishments, would have every reason to boast. But he says that I was all crucified on the cross. And that is what he's calling the word that was crucified to him in Galatians 6.14. The word that was crucified to him are those accomplishments. That is the word that was crucified to him. So the word is the righteousness and confidence that comes as a result of our own performance. As a result of our own obedience. Because he says, when it comes to righteousness concerning the law, Man, I was blameless. When it comes to zeal, man, I was persecuting the church. I was a Pharisee, man. <laughs> and he says, the word was crucified to me. So all these accomplishments are they that he calls the word in Galatians 6, 6, 14. So the word is the righteousness that comes from the obedience of the flesh. Loving your accomplishments of life in whatever capacity and hoping to carry favor to achieve righteousness with God by them is what is called loving the world. It's not watching some horror movie. That's not what Paul is talking about. And that would be very surprising to a lot of seemingly pious people. But that is exactly what Paul is saying. Because by these things, sinners seek favor and justification before God. But forsaking all these accomplishments as hope before God is what it means. To hate one's life. Forsaking all those accomplishments. Losing one's life and getting crucified. So we, we talk about hating yourself. No confidence in the flesh. No confidence in anything that you've accomplished. What is to follow Christ then? Verse 8, Philippians 3. Yet indeed I also count all things loss. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Apostle Paul is saying all that he gave us in that list 
was rubbish. <laughs> was rubbish. Unbelievable. To follow Christ is to leave all those things behind that you thought were good for your acceptance by God. And not just leaving them behind, but counting them, but loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And I can give a list of the things that are done and lost. And that list will go on forever. But it is just shorter and easier to say, whatever is not the righteousness of Christ, we ought to count that as loss and done. That's the shortest list. <laughs> we have to forsake it and let it go. But the forsaking of all things that we thought were good in exchange for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ is going to involve suffering. This is going to be very important. When you forsake your righteousness, it's going to be painful. The suffering happens because of the exchange of one thing for another. There would not be suffering if Jesus said, no, it's okay to bring whatever else you had in your U-Haul. You bring that together with my righteousness. No suffering with that. The suffering comes from the reality that you have to forsake that which you had put confidence in, in exchange for Christ. Suffering happens because we had put a lot of stock into our performance. We thought God was very pleased with those things that we thought were good in our own eyes. Counting things as rubbish and dung that you thought were the jewels of your performance, the things that made you special, the things that, that made you a special person, in your eyes, I'm so special. I'm so cute. Grandma told me that. The thing that made you so special, that you thought God was going to come and say, oh man, that is so good, Jenny. I never thought you could do that. <laughs> it's almost like you have this treasure and you think it's worth $200,000 and then you go and sell it in an auction and the highest bid is five bucks. <laughs> And you go to every auction floor in the world and the most that you get for it is five bucks. <laughs> There's going to be suffering involved in that. <laughs> there has to be suffering to come with the forsaking of all things. Why? Because there has to be some serious withdrawal symptoms. There are serious withdrawal symptoms when you realize that all that you thought was good before God is nothing. It doesn't commend you before God in any way. But the story does not end that way. Bless you, Charlie. But there's something to be gained. Christ is to be gained in this exchange. It is not just forsaking for forsaking's sake. You're forsaking to gain something. And you are gaining something better than everything that you have forsaken. Listen to what Jesus said. In verse 26 of Matthew, the Matthew text that we, Matthew 16, Jesus said, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? To gain the world is, is to have your own righteousness. To gain the world is having your own righteousness and to stand on your own goodness and your own accomplishments for salvation. But the Lord comes and says, and Jesus was an accountant in this section of John 16. Jesus is speaking as an accountant and says, profit, loss, exchange, gain. 
What profit is it to you if you get all the goodness and righteousness that the world can give if they are not enough to exchange for your own soul? Yes, you may gain a lot of points from what you can do in the flesh, but the problem is it's not sufficient to make an exchange for your soul. What are you going to give in exchange for your soul? Why? Because your soul needs to be exchanged. Your soul does not belong to you. It belongs to sin, death, and condemnation. And so it needs to be exchanged from that. There has to be payment made for that exchange to happen. A ransom payment is required for the salvation of your soul. And that payment for the freedom and salvation of the soul is not to be found in what the world can give. And that means in what you can produce. But salvation demands that an exchange be made. Salvation requires an exchange. And depending on how it is done, there's going to be profit or loss. There's a profit and loss statement. So profit and loss statement did not come with companies. (laughs) It came with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, those who love the world and its righteousness, the operas of the world, the Bill Gates of the world, Melinda Gates, <laughs> and its righteousness that is according to the works of the law, we will make an exchange with their righteousness because they loved the world. They loved the righteousness that comes from their works in the world. And because of that righteousness, they are going to reap corruption. They are going to reap a loss Because it is insufficient to exchange for life. They are going to suffer loss. But there are these who hate the world. They take up the cross and they follow Christ. And will find themselves with the blood of Christ on their backs like Simon the Siren. Those who take up the cross, they are not taking up just any cross. They are taking up the cross of Christ. Which means they are taking the righteousness that is in the cross of Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. And it is these who then come and say with Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, 9, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ or the faith of Christ, Sister Jenny, since you've been reading, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So that's the exchange That's what Jesus is telling the Greeks and telling us also. Not having your own righteousness, which is from the law, is impossible for man to accept. And yet there are many who continue to push for the righteousness that comes from the law. When the testimony of the scriptures is that there's no righteousness that comes from our own law obedience. There's none. They think the law is the friend of a sinner. The law can never be the friend of a sinner in any way. The righteous have been crucified to the law with Christ. They are dead to the law because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. And if you still think we have something that we are answerable to the law, then you are an unbeliever, according to Paul, because Paul says Christ is the end of the law only for those who believe. 
So if you think it's Christ and the law, then you're an unbeliever, according to Paul. That's the Judaizer problem. That's what was happening in the church, the Galatian church. They were saying, well, Christ is not enough. We have to add a little bit of Moses. Okay? You have to take Moses with you to the cruise. <laughs> but listen to this. Those who hate the world shall live because they also hate the righteousness which is according to the law. Because it is a righteousness of their own works. So to hate the world then is to hate the righteousness works. Why? Because Jesus is making a contrast between the world and what he brings. The world system is all about works salvation. And that is why they have job performance evaluation. And that is why they give bonuses. What are they doing? They are evaluating your righteousness according to the law, according to the flesh. But see the distinction between the righteousness of the world and how it gives things to people compared to God. The world has to do a job performance according to some standard. And then they're going to give you 5% bonus, 3%, whatever number. But God gives all things freely. God gives freely. He says in Romans 4, 5, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So with God, the lazier you are, the more that Christ benefits you. And if you stop working, even the better. <laughs> I'm telling the truth. And this is so contrary to the way that we've been wired to think. God says, if you have to have the righteousness that leads to eternal life, you have to be a couch potato. That's how things are going to go. You stop working and you hold to the righteousness which is by faith alone. <laughs> so those who hate the world have been crucified with and by Christ and they possess the righteousness of Christ which is not theirs but it is the righteousness which is through faith in Christ or which is by the faith of Christ. We now have to say that all the time. <laughs> The righteousness which is from God by faith. The righteousness that is freely reckoned or imputed or given to us. And the word freely there means without cause. It's given to you without cause in you. <laughs> There's nothing good in you that caused God to give it to you. So to follow Christ then is not to make new covenants with God in the new year. It is not to begin a Daniel's fast, maybe 10 days. Uh, talking of which, when Daniel fasted, actually he did not lose weight. He actually gained weight. You go and read Daniel. He did not lose weight. He gained weight. <laughs> to follow Christ is to forsake any hope of acceptance before God by our own works. And so Paul continues and says, Philippians 3, 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So you will not know and cannot know Christ if you have any other righteousness which is not his righteousness. It's actually a very important point. You cannot and will not know who Christ is if you possess any other righteousness than his righteousness. Having the righteousness of Christ is the only way 
by which you can know God and by which God can be known. And you have to forsake whatever you're building in your heart is something to present before God. God will not accept it. It is illegal tender. Only the blood of Christ is the legal currency in heavenly matters, just as the US dollar is the only legal tender in all transactions in the United States. Okay? So the Lord stated to the Greeks and to us how we have to come to him. They have to come because of his blood on the cross. The blood is what begins and finishes all things. But they will also come hating and despising their own righteousness. And the Lord is very clear on this matter. And so he says, that is our last verse, and we are done. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So the Lord was here reaffirming the condition of salvation and saying it is all about him. Follow me, he said. All servants of Christ testify of him. Moses testified of Christ. The Lord testified of Christ. The Holy Spirit testified of Christ. Those who seek to see Jesus will come and testify of Christ. He gives them the righteousness of his glorification on the cross. But the Lord said, wherever I am, where I am, there my servant will be also. But not only that, after everything is said and done, the servants of Christ who possess his righteousness shall also be with Christ where he is. So sleep. No, I'm not for so sleep. I shall be with Christ where he is and the Father will honor them. Why does the Father honor them? The Lord will honor all who bring the testimony of the righteousness of his son as their only righteousness. Do you see the contrast? God is saying he is only going to honor you when you bring the righteousness of his son just as Isaac honored Jacob because he had on the clothes of his older brother Esau. That's how he was honored. Jacob still remained Jacob but he was honored because of the clothes of his older brother. That's how he got the testimony and the blessing. And the Lord does not lie in this. He is not lying. So to bear the testimony of the righteousness of Christ is to serve Christ. The one who serves Christ to his glory in the gospel will be honored by the Father. I did not say that. And Jesus was not here teaching works righteousness salvation. He was not saying you go on the treadmill and work so hard to be honored. He has just told us that salvation comes through the laying down of his life in the picture of the wheat. But in the light of that, those who possess his righteousness shall save him and the father will honor them. The father will honor the righteousness that is on you. He will vindicate the righteousness that is on you. And we can't deny that because Jesus said it. So if we want to honor God, we honor him by believing the testimony of the father about the son. Jesus said in John 12, 44, then Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. So when we bring the testimony of Christ, we are not just believing in Christ, we are believing in the father. And the father is going to honor that. That's what Jesus is saying. He's going to honor everyone who brings the testimony of the righteousness of Christ. 
So everything said, our interest in religion is not ourselves. Our interest is to come and see Jesus. Because when we do that, we are honoring the Father. We are believing the testimony of the Father about the Son. We do not come to Jesus to hear about ourselves, but to hear about Jesus. And the answers that we seek about ourselves are only found when we come looking to see Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is all, and in him all things hold. If we do not understand what God says about his son, we shall know nothing about salvation, and we shall know nothing about God. If we don't understand what God is saying about Jesus, we shall not know who God is. But in the process, we shall never know who we are, because we shall only know who we are in the face of Christ. You see the connection. So it is important that we see Jesus because when we see Jesus, we see who we are in him. But when we seek Jesus, he is going to tell us about the righteousness of the cross. He is going to tell us to deny ourselves. He is going to tell us to hate ourselves that we may have his righteousness, that we may live. He is going to tell us that if we love ourselves and the righteousness of the world, then we are going to die. Now, in the context of that, the Lord gave me this. This was not part of the teaching, but it came last night. As you are, I talk to a lot of people and who understand the gospel, they believe the gospel. And there's a big issue that people have about the testimony of the gospel. It is that they struggle, they believe everything that the scriptures say, but they see a disconnect between what they experience as Christians and what the scriptures declare. They, they are looking to the fruit of the gospel in their life. And these things need to be clearly taught because if we don't teach them clearly, then we are bound to cause distress. Distress that may be unhealthy to some level. And that may cause some people to stumble. And I went to Habakkuk 3. I was not reading Habakkuk 3. I have not read Habakkuk in almost a year. But I got this understanding from verse 17 to 18. Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no head in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. What is that saying? This is not talking about agriculture. This is a gospel teaching. Though you may not feel righteous, though you feel empty, though you feel like there's no fruit on your vine, you don't feel the fruit. You don't see it. You don't see the labor of the olive tree. You see your olive tree that is you failing and you don't see any fruit coming out of you. The Holy Spirit says, Rejoice in the Lord and his salvation. <laughs> because, brothers and sisters, if you go and you begin to inspect your own fruit, a mango tree, an apple tree, doesn't even know that it has fruit when it has fruit. And fruit that grows on a tree is not for the tree to eat. An apple tree does not eat apples. The fruit that grows is not for you to eat it. It is for others. Okay? It is for others. And because it is for others, you don't feel it. 
you don't see it. So it may feel like you are a barren tree, but you're not. But God says, even when it appears like you are dry, rejoice in the Lord and his salvation still. Your hope is not in you. Your hope is not in the fruit that you see. Your hope is not in your own vines. Your hope is not in your labor. Your hope is not in your fields of laboring. Your hope is in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in his salvation. So in spite of the heaviness of the cross, of having to give up your own righteousness, you're going to feel like you are traveling through dry places. You are in the desert. But remember, rejoice in the Lord. That's the only hope. And that's the gospel. Praise the Lord. We are done. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you. We honor you again for this teaching. We thank you, Lord, for the Greeks that came to hear the testimony. And we thank you for your response to them that if anyone has to see Jesus, they have to hear about him crucified. They have to hear about them forsaking their own righteousness, hating their lives, carrying their own cross, and following him. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony of the gospel. Thank you for these wonderful words. May you bring remembrance to them, to these who are here and those who shall listen from afar off. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, for his faithfulness to continue to declare the things of Christ to us, to give us spiritual eyes that we may see him, because if we don't see Christ, we don't see anything. If we don't see Christ, we cannot know ourselves, for our life is hid in Christ. And Lord, may you continue to bring this testimony to us and all your people. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.